So then, let's start our Dhamma talk with the Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa As I have been talking about impermanence, anicca, and unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, uh, for the past two days, so you probably know what I'm going to talk about tonight. The third general characteristic, which is anatta, or the impersonal nature of all phenomena. The teaching of impersonality implies that there is nothing inside or outside these mental and physical phenomena which is inherently existent or which could be the seed of an independently existing I, me, self, or soul. This teaching of anatta, non-self or impersonality, is the core of the Buddha's teaching. It's crucial that we understand this point in order to fully grasp what the Buddha's teaching is all about. And on top of that, this teaching of non-self impersonality is also actually the only really specific Buddhist teaching. Other points such as the teaching of loving-kindness or compassion, we can also find in other religions. But it was only the Buddha who so explicitly and precisely taught anatta, the impersonal nature of all existing things. At the time of the Buddha, in India, there lived many ascetics, hermits, and wandering priests. And they all were teaching their doctrines. But all of these teachings or doctrines were based on the belief in Atta, which is the contrary of Anatta. So, Atta means that there is something that exists independently, something that living beings are born with and that stays the same until they die. And so, normally, this thing, Atta, is called the I or the ego, or the self, or soul. So, in all these teachings or doctrines, living beings are already born with this atta, and then it stays the same as long as they are alive. At the time of death, this Atta either went on to another existence or it was annihilated. 
the belief that this Atta continues to exist after death, this is called eternalism. The belief that this Atta exists eternally. And all the beliefs which assume that this Atta stops or ceases to be at the time of death, that it is annihilated, so this belief is called annihilationism. And these were the two mainstream or main group of teachings that were present um, in the old India at the time of the Buddha. And within either eternalism or annihilationism, there still were differences in uh, teachings or doctrines. But basically, all the existing teachings at that time could be grouped in either of these two. And we know that because in one of the suttas, the Buddha actually mentioned um, these existing beliefs. And he said that at that time, 62 of these beliefs in Atta existed. So, it was in this spiritual environment that the different aesthetic practices evolved and developed. All these aesthetic practices were practiced with the aim to purify the Atta, to make it pure from all the stains or defilements, and to make it pure in order to get away from the cycle of birth and death. And to get away from samsara, and if this Atta is purified, then it will be united with the so-called big Atta, or the big soul. And this big Atta, big soul, was also known as the Mahabrahma. This unification with Mahabrahma, or the big Atta, that meant eternal peace and everlasting happiness. And this is the goal of Hinduism, or uh, Brahmanism. In Hinduism, the world was created by Mahabrahma, by the big soul, big Atta. And then, after the world had been created, when the circumstances were favorable, Mahabrahma created beings. But first, these beings were like puppets. They were not alive. And so, to enable them to walk about, stand up, he put a small soul in each of these living beings. And so, after that, these beings came alive. They could get up, walk around, go here and there. And so, there is this little soul in each and every living being. And this little soul, given by the Mahabrahma, this was eternal and indestructible. Nothing could destroy it because it was given by Mahabrahma. And so this little soul, that was called Atta or more precisely, Jiva Atta, which means the life-giving soul, because only after beings had been endowed with this little soul were they alive. And so then, 
before a person or a being is going to die, this Atas knows that death is coming soon. And so the soul, the little soul, can prepare to leave the body and then incarnate in a different body. In the belief of eternalism, so this Atta has to go to another existence. And to which existence it will go, that is determined by karma, which means by the action that were performed by this being. So, if that soul had created wholesome and meritorious deeds, then the incarnation would be in a favorite existence. So, then in that next, next existence, again, when that being was about to die, this soul had to prepare to leave that body again and then was reincarnated in yet another body. And as I said, because this Atta was given by the Mahabrahma, it was indestructible. Nothing and nobody could destroy it. And so then the cycle of birth and death goes on. And only if a person undertakes the purification of this little Atta, only then could that person, that being, be unified with the Mahabrahma. So, get out of the cycle of birth and death. And this unification with the big Atta, with Mahabrahma, this meant eternal peace, everlasting happiness. So this teaching, this doctrine is known as Hinduism or uh, Brahmanism. The Buddha said that the belief in an indestructible entity, an eternally existing Atta, is wrong view, Viti in Pali. And this belief is based on ignorance, of not understanding things as they truly are. So as I said before, in order to purify this little Atta and to attain the unification with the Mahabrahma, all these different ascetic practices were practiced. Because people believed that these ascetic practices would help to purify the soul, the Atta. One of the um, ascetic practices was called sitting between the five fires. So then an ascetic would make four fires around him, one in front of him, one in the back of him, and one to each side of him. And then the sun in the sky was the fifth fire. And so it was believed that sitting in this incredible heat, this would burn all the defilements. And in this way, that the soul, the Atta, could be purified. Other ascetic practices involved remaining in one position for a long, long time. Like standing on one leg all the time, or uh, being in the headstand all day long. Others believed in the purifying effects of lying on a bed of thorns or lying on a bed of nails. 
some other ascetics practiced what they call the dog practice or the oxen practice. So if a person would practice the dog practice, he, maybe she, would behave like a dog. So then that person would walk around on all fours. And to eat, that person would eat the food with the mouth directly from the earth and drinking water, the person would lick the water from a puddle of water or from a little stream or creek. And in the evening, that person would search for a place to lie down. Uh, if there was a place with some ashes, which was still a bit warm, and then, as dogs sometimes do, turn around three times before actually lying down. And then lying down, curled up like a dog. So they believed undertaking such a practice would purify the soul from the stains, from the defilements. One of these ascetic practices that the Buddha followed was to reduce the food, eat very little. And finally, the Buddha, before he was enlightened, he only ate one grain of rice per day. Of course, he got very skinny, <laughs> he lost a lot of weight, and he said that at that time, actually, when he was touching his belly, he touched his backbone. But after some time, the Buddha realized that these ascetic practices did not lead to liberation or to fully understand things as they were. And so he stopped practicing these forms of self-mortification. So then he chose a way in the middle of the extreme. One extreme was these practices of self-mortification, which were useless. And the other extreme was indulging in sense pleasures. And the Buddha knew that from his life when he was a prince, his princely life among many sense pleasures in the palace. So only when he had given up these extreme practices or ways of living and taken a path in the middle, could he penetrate into deeper levels of reality and finally see things as they really are. He realized the truth by himself and he also saw that other beings had the ability to discover it for themselves. So finally, he had found the answer to his question of how to overcome all forms of suffering and unsatisfactoriness. So when the Buddha penetrated into the deepest truth, he discovered that there was actually no such a thing as an Atta or an everlasting or independently existing I or me or soul. And he also realized that it was exactly this wrong belief in a self that kept beings in the ever-turning cycle of samsara. So because beings were caught in this wrong view and identifying 
with the I or me or self, they were actually living in the dark. But his discovery, his enlightenment was like a light shining in the dark, showing him what actually existed. So having made this discovery and overcome this wrong belief, that freed him immediately from all kinds of suffering and unsatisfactoriness. Not even the most subtle forms of anger or greed were remaining. So his mind was completely illuminated. The light of wisdom and compassion were shining forth, dispelling the darkness of ignorance. And with that experience, he knew that this was the deepest peace or the highest happiness. And he knew that it was unshakable, that it could not destroyed the anymore for him. So this state of full enlightenment has the power to free us from any kind of suffering and unsatisfactoriness and troubles and worries and misery. And the Buddha realized it for himself and he was freed from it. And he saw that by practicing the middle way, other beings could attain it as well. It was not some superhuman state that could only be achieved by a Buddha. But he saw that actually every living being had the potential uh, to attain to this state. So, what is known today as Buddhism or the Dhamma um, is the fact that there exists no Atta in the ultimate sense, no inherently existing entity that beings are born with and that stays with them throughout their life. So neither in the body nor in the mind can such an everlasting entity be found. But even the Buddha was still talking of persons and beings and men and women and with this he just used conventional terms, conventional words to communicate with others. But he fully understood that the so-called person or being is not something endowed with an atta. But he saw that a so-called person is just a combination of mental and physical phenomena which depend on certain causes and conditions. So, the teaching of anatta, impersonality or non-self, is closely interwoven with the teaching of dependent origination, paticca samupada because things arise dependent on causes and conditions, because of that we, we are here. Because of that there are animals or devas. But we as human beings or devas or animals or hell beings, uh, none of these beings has an indestructible or everlasting entity and atta in them. So, things do exist. 
the Buddha did not deny this, but he just said that beings and also material things exist in a different way, like depend on causes and conditions. He said that there is no solid substance in whatever there exists. And for this we can take the comparison with a rainbow. As you all know, a rainbow has no solid substance that you can go and grasp. But a child takes a rainbow for something really solid and firmly existing. I was no exception when I was small. Whenever I saw a rainbow, I thought, oh, it would be nice to go to the base of the rainbow and then climb up on the arch of the rainbow. But then, when I grew up, I learned or I realized yeah, that a rainbow is not a solid thing hanging there uh, over the sky, but that the rainbow is a phenomena that comes into existence when the necessary conditions are present, namely drops of water and sunlight and seen from the right angle. And so, as soon as these conditions are not present anymore, when there is no more sunlight, when there is no more rain, then a rainbow dissolves, does not exist anymore. Last year, from mid-August until the end of October, I was staying on Maui. Maui is one of the Hawaiian islands. I was there to do a self-retreat for one month and then for six weeks I was working on an English translation of one of Mahasi Sayadaw's books about the practice of Vipassana meditation. It's a book that has um, not yet been translated into English. It's a very uh, thick book and gives very, very detailed explanations about the practice of Vipassana meditation. Very interesting, but also quite difficult <laughs> to understand. So, when I came out of my retreat and started to work on this translation, then um, I was told or that the Hawaii, the Hawaiian Islands, are famous for their many rainbows, that apparently rainbows uh, one can see almost every day. And it was like that. I had never seen so many rainbows almost every day. And a couple of times it happened that there was not this rainbow in the sky, but on the other side of the island there was a volcano and there were some clouds hanging around the volcano. And so this cluster of clouds was colored in the rainbow color. So quite an amazing sight. But then, after some time, the colors just faded away and then it was the normal looking whitish, grayish um, cloud. So, things, living beings, come into existence when the right conditions are there and they disappear with the non-existence of these conditions. In the Visuddhimagga, there it is said, suffering exists, but nobody who suffers. 
deep exists, but no doer. Enlightenment happens, but no person that attains enlightenment. The path exists, but no person walking on it. This teaching of anatta in personality is a riddle that cannot be solved by uh, intellectual reasoning or reflection. If it were possible to come to a full grasp of this teaching, then many intelligent people would already have um, understood it fully. But, as the Buddha pointed out, it must be realized or experienced directly and personally by each and every person. And so, with the practice of meditation, we pave the ground on which this experience can happen. Many yogis or meditators get a first glimpse into the teaching of anatta or non-self during their walking meditation. So, as instructed by the teacher, they observe the movement of the foot, lifting, pushing, dropping, lifting, pushing, dropping, and then after a certain period of time, of days, maybe weeks, when their mindfulness becomes strong enough and their concentration deep enough, then they will see or feel these movements of lifting or pushing forward or dropping down, they just feel this movement, but they do not feel the foot anymore. It's just like something is moving, this they know. Something is pushed forward, something is dropping down. And first of all, it just might be that there is no more foot later, Maybe they cannot be aware anymore of the legs or even the whole sense of form of the body disappears. But they are just aware something is moving. And so then, first of all, they are quite startled, thinking something is going wrong because they lose the leg, they lose their body. <laughs> but actually, this is the first glimpse into anatta, into the impersonal nature of phenomena. Because they lose the sense of their body, so they also lose the sense of the I or the ego. Because very often, um, body is identified with I or me my body. And so, if there is no more body around, so there is nothing, uh, no basis to identify the I or the ego with. For some meditators, uh, it can be quite a frightening experience, because it's so unusual, quite shocking. But with the support of the teacher and then with continuous practice, they get familiar with that kind of experience and they see that it is actually nothing strange or unusual, but actually that this, this is natural. Or another way of catching a glimpse of anatta is 
can also be experienced in walking meditation when meditators start to observe intentions. Later I will instruct you also to observe intentions because every movement that you perform with your body is actually preceded or caused by a so-called intention. So with deep enough concentration and sharp enough mindfulness, before you start lifting the foot, for example, if you are very mindful, very alert and present, then you will notice that just a short moment before the movement starts, there is this little impulse in the mind, intention to lift. And so after this impulse or this intention has occurred, then the foot starts lifting. And the same can be experienced before the pushing movement. So you stop the lifting movement and then just before the pushing movement starts, you notice in the mind there is an impulse or like a flash. And after that, the foot starts moving forward. And with that experience, you come to see the conditioned nature of phenomena or the cause and effect relationship. So you come to see that the intention is actually the cause and that the movement then is the effect. And later on, you will notice that if there is no intention to lift the foot, then the foot won't be lifted. So, only when there is a cause, will there be an effect. Only when there is an intention to lift the foot, is the foot lifted. And so this experience of cause and effect also makes you realize that there is no so-called me or I or Atta which controls things, but that things happen according to causes and conditions. And so making you realize that this body, this mind, are impersonal processes. But, you know, as logical as it might be, and maybe you grasp it intellectually, but this is not enough for a real deep understanding which has the power to bring about transformation. So, each person has to directly and personally experience it for her or himself. Before I became a nun, at one stage I was a backpacker traveling around the world. And at one stage I was in Nepal where I did several of the treks in the Himalayas. And one, ta- one time with a group of three, four Australian people, I did the trek to the base camp of Makalu. Makalu is one of the mountains higher than 8,000 meters and it's not very far from Mount Everest. So, when we started the trek, still a far way off from the base camp, we had to cross several hill chains. And so gradually we gained in height and the hills, the mountains became a bit bigger. And 
then we had to cross sort of the last big mountain chain and crossing that over a path we would come to the valley which would lead us up to the base camp of Makalu. And it was quite a far way up to the path, so we camped, spent the night halfway up to the path. And in my guidebook it says it said that uh, from that path one could catch the first glimpse of Makalu on this track. And it also said that one had to get up uh, in the morning very early in order to reach the path before the clouds were setting in and hiding the mountains. So of course I didn't want to miss to see Makalu and I got up early and started walking early. And when I reached up to the path, there was this spectacular view of huge snow and ice-capped mountains. And one of these huge mountains was standing out. It was far bigger and higher than the others. And although I had never seen Makalu before, but at that moment I knew the big outstanding one that was Makalu, definitely. There was no doubt about it. And so already then, little fluffy clouds had formed hanging on the sides of the mountains and it didn't take too long that the clouds grow bigger and bigger and so then finally covered all the mountains. And it was only then that the rest of the group made it up to the path and they couldn't see Makalu. And so I just could point out in the direction and say, you know, over there it is. So because I had seen it myself, I was sure it was there. For me, there was no more doubt. But for the others, they just could see clouds, clouds and clouds. So they could think maybe it's like that. But for them, it was not yet sure. So the way of understanding anatta is not different. You have to see it, you have to experience it for yourself. Then you know for sure. Then you have no more doubt. Then you understand and know that this is really how it is. In one of the discourses, the Buddha tried to illustrate the lack of any substance in phenomena, or in other words, the empty nature of all phenomena. Empty in the sense of being empty of an atta, or me, I, and soul. So the Buddha said that imagine on the river Ganges there comes a lump of foam floating down. And so if a person would go close and look at it, examine it, that person could find no solid substance in that foam. And so, the Buddha said, in the same way, form or material phenomena are as empty, as hollow or insubstantial as foam is. And then the Buddha said, imagine that it is raining and 
the drops of rain fall into a pond and when they hit the surface of the pond a little bubble is formed but then this bubble immediately bursts and so again if a person would go and examine that bubble that person would find no substance to it it's empty, insubstantial and the Buddha said in the same way our feelings feelings in the Buddhist sense of pleasant, unpleasant or neutral so feelings are also as insubstantial as hollow as void as bubbles the next similar is that Imagine a hot day in the hot season, then a shimmering image appears in the distance, a mirage or Fata Morgana. And again, a person would go and examine that hut. He would not find anything solid or substance in it. And so then the Buddha said, every perception he perceives is as hollow and insubstantial as a mirage. The next simile is that a person goes into the forest to look for some hardwood. So he has an axe and then cuts down a banana tree but as you know a banana tree has just different layers so you take off the upper layer and then you come to the next one and you take this off and you come to the next one and taking off one layer after another there is no solid core in the trunk of a banana tree and so then the Buddha said, all volitional formations are as hollow and insubstantial as the trunk of a banana tree. And finally, he said, imagine there is a magician displaying some magical illusions. And again, a person would go and examine these magical illusions but again the person couldn't find any substance to it no solid thing, no core and the Buddha said in the same way as the magical illusion which is hollow, insubstantial consciousness is also insubstantial, void So this teaching of anatta in personality is also referred to at times with the term emptiness. Especially in the Tibetan Buddhist teaching, they uh, more often use this term, sunyata in Pali, emptiness. But when people just hear this word, when they do not have a thorough understanding of the Buddha's teaching, then very often um, emptiness is misunderstood. Because for them, the word emptiness, it implies that everything is empty, like nothing is there. And so they think that the Buddha's teaching is a nihilistic teaching. But emptiness must be understood in relation to dependent origination. Things are not empty in an ordinary sense, like we have a glass of water or just a glass. And if there is no water inside, then we say the glass is empty. So nothing 
is inside. But emptiness in the Buddhist teaching does not mean that things are empty, that they are not existing, but it just means that things or phenomena are empty of an inherently everlasting existing I, Atta, or soul. Things do exist. The Buddha never denied that, but he just pointed out that they exist dependent on causes and conditions. One day, the Venerable Ananda, who was the Buddha's personal attendant, he approached the Buddha and said, Venerable Sir, people say, empty is the world, empty is the world. In what way do they say, empty is the world? And so the Buddha said, it is because it is empty of self and of what belongs to self. That's why people say empty is the world. And so what is empty of self or what belongs to self? And the Buddha continued saying, the I is empty of self and what belongs to self. Forms, visible forms, they are also empty of self and what belongs to self. I consciousness, that which sees the visible forms, I consciousness is empty of self and what belongs to self. And I contact Contact, uh, that the eye, the visible, um, the physical eye that comes in contact with the visible form, that eye contact, that too is empty of a self or what belongs to self. And also the feeling that then arises, feeling in the Buddhist sense of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, also feeling is empty of self and what belongs to self. And the Buddha went on to explain the same thing for the other senses, like the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. So basically saying, there is nothing that can be called self, or nothing that belongs to self. So, all phenomena are empty or insubstantial, hollow, void, just as, a, as foam is empty, bubbles are insubstantial, a mirage is insubstantial, the trunk of a banana tree has no core and a magical illusion is empty. <coughs> so as we have seen, things, phenomena, arise dependent on causes and conditions. Our body is dependent on certain causes and conditions and also our mind. The causes and conditions are just natural laws and they keep living beings um, alive, keep them going. If we think that we have control over our life, our, our control over our body or our uh, mind, it only seems so on a very superficial level. But as soon as we really want to make use of this control, we have to admit we don't actually have 
this absolute control. Just take an example as, you know, when you get a strong cold, you are coughing and your rose nose is running all the time and you feel really miserable, then, you know, it's uncomfortable and you want to get rid of it. So if you had the control, you just would say, hey, call, I don't want you, go away, now. It doesn't work, does it? Or something that you have probably experienced now in these two days of meditation, um, three days actually, um, if a thought keeps occurring, comes again and again and again, and uh, you don't want to see that thought anymore, so why don't you tell this thought, don't come anymore, I had enough of you. You can't do that, can you? So, yes, we do not have this absolute control. It only seems so on a very uh, superficial level. Or when we suddenly hear a very loud noise, then normally we turn around the head to look where the noise comes from or what caused it. And so this turning around of the head happens so fast and we think automatically, but um, it's not actually happening automatically. And even if we don't want the head to turn, it has already turned before we are aware of it. So then, who is in, on, is in control of what? That's why anatta is also defined as having no control. The uncontrollability of phenomena. If we want to admit it or not, but lastly, finally, all phenomena are not under our absolute control. Even though at times we think we all have it under our control and it has gone as far as people think they can control nature or the weather or things like that, but it's not so. Again, one time a monk asked the Buddha, Venerable Sir, who is it that feels and the Buddha replied, actually, this is not a valid question. I do not say one feels. A valid question would be, depending on what conditions does feeling arise? So, these three general characteristics of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, or impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and impersonality. These three characteristics are actually closely interwoven. It is said that if one understands one of these three characteristics really deeply, then we said the other two characteristics are also understood. And sometimes when the Buddha was giving a discourse, he tried to make understand his listeners 
uh, in the following way. So he used a set of questions to ask them. So then he would ask, what do you think is material form, the body or any material thing, is that permanent or impermanent? And then the listeners would say, impermanent, Venerable Sir. Then the Buddha asks, is feeling or perception or mental formations or consciousness, is that permanent or impermanent? And again the listeners would reply, impermanent, uh, Venerable Sir. And then the Buddha would ask, is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? And the answer would be suffering, Venerable Sir. And the next question the Buddha would ask is, is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. And of course, uh, the answer would be no, Venerable Sir. It cannot be regarded as me, I, or self. When the Buddha uh, delivered his first discourse, after his enlightenment to the five ascetics, they attained the first stage of enlightenment. They did not become yet fully enlightened. It was only after the Buddha's second discourse that they reached full enlightenment. And this second discourse was the famous Anathalakana Sutta which is the discourse on the characteristic of non-self. So, anatta, or the teaching of non-self, impersonality, or emptiness, is not a, um, a teaching to either blindly believe or to reject with prejudice. Rather, it is a teaching that should be investigated very carefully with an open heart and a non-judgmental mind. In Vipassana meditation, there is nothing more important than to carefully observe things with an ever-present awareness. And so, on the base of this non-judgmental awareness, then the mind comes automatically to see how things really are. With no clouds in the sky, Makalu stands out against the clear sky. With no defilement in the mind, the light of wisdom shows forth, and then naturally understands the impermanent, the insatisfactory, and the impersonal nature of phenomena. I will conclude this talk with a quote from the Dhammapada. There it says, Sabe Sankara Anicca, Sabe Sankara Dukkha, Dhamma Anatta. In English it means all conditioned things are impermanent. All conditioned things are unsatisfactory. And all things, all phenomena are impersonal. You might have noticed impermanence and suffering 
uh, is limited to conditioned phenomena. So, Sabe Sankara. Sankara, as I explained yesterday, are conditioned phenomena. So, what is conditioned is subject to impermanence and suffering. And I also mentioned yesterday that there is only one thing that is not conditioned and that is Nibbana. That's why Nibbana it cannot be said to be impermanent. Nibbana cannot be said to be suffering. But even Nibbana is impersonal. That's why it is said Sabe Dhamma, all Dhammas, all existing things, whatever, are impersonal, non-self. So, may all of you rightly understand and personally experience the impersonal nature of phenomena and become fully liberated. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.